We each have our own gift to give, and yours is unique. What reality you want to create, that's your choice, always. No one can take that from you. Thank you so much, Gay, for, for being here today. I really, really appreciate you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, so we've known each other for, what now, like five, six, seven years, something like that. I don't know. Like something a, like that, yeah. A few years, yeah. And you've been a major influence in my life from like first hearing about your books and reading your books and then getting to work with you personally one-on-one -on -one and getting to know uh, your wife, Katie, also. You've just had this incredible uh, influence on, your, on my life. Um, and I think I talk about you like at least every week to someone. This morning I was mentioning you um, on a call with some of our Simplero customers. So thank you so much for, for being who you are and for showing up the way that you do. Thank you. It's, I'm glad to be with you again. I really enjoy your creative mind. Thanks, Gay. Thank you so much. So um, give, give people watching, listening to this just a little bit about yourself, who you are. I spend most of my time these days writing books. And um, my wife and I have been together, Katie and I have been together for 40 years now. So that's a mainstay of my life, our relationship. Uh, we've written 10 books together. Uh, Back in the early days of our relationship, we decided we wanted to work and teach together. So we've done hundreds and hundreds of seminars together all over the world. And also, um, we were very proud of being, um, when we were invited to come on Oprah for the first time, I guess 30 years ago now almost, um, we insisted that they take us as a couple. In other words, they wanted to just have one of us come. I don't know if it was to economize on a plane ticket or what, but then we said, no, we're teaching relationship work. We want both of us to come. And they said, oh, okay. And it turned out to be a big hit. And so um, we've, I guess one of the main things I wanted to create in my life was a healthy, long lasting, loving relationship. And so uh, to that extent, I've made my dream come true. I've been yeah. also, um, that's like an Engage. accomplishment, man. That's a real accomplishment. Yes, I feel like that's my great accomplishment because, well, as I as I tell people, what what good is having a PhD in counseling psychology from Stanford if you can't get along with one person? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Most of my professors, when I was uh, getting my uh, doctoral degree, I took a look at that and I said, wow, how can they be so smart in class and how have such screwed up relationships? But mm -hmm. anyway, the um, point I want to make is that uh, I come from first an academic background where I was a university professor for 21 years at the University of Colorado and my main job was training counselors and psychotherapists and then I um, like we always say Oprah struck we wrote a book called Conscious Loving Katie and I in uh, 1989 and so somewhere around 1990 or 91 we were invited to go on Oprah for the first time and so uh, we were both university professors at the time, and uh, I always say that completely wiped out my academic career because uh, suddenly instead of selling 5,000 textbooks a year to graduate students, I was now selling hundreds and hundreds of thousands of marital self-help books to the general public. And so it took me into a whole different category. And so we set up our own institute, the Hendricks Institute, which has now been in uh, successful operation since 1989. And uh, my wife mostly runs that now. Katie's kind of a genius business person and organizer in addition to um, all the other wonderful things she is. So um, I spend my days, uh, I also am very dedicated to keeping my body healthy. So for example, I just came from a gym from working out for an hour. 
Uh, I'm a big believer in um, keeping the circulation moving and all the gunk cleared out of my body. So I'm always out there playing golf or riding my bike or pumping iron or something to keep the flow going. And so that uh, that's one thing I'm very dedicated to is uh, feeling good all the time. So yeah. I would say at this stage of my life, um, I've been working on personal transformation things since uh, the year of 1969. And at that time, believe it or not, I'm going to stand up to demonstrate here. I weigh 180 pounds now, but at the time, I weighed 320 pounds. So picture another whole 140-pound person around me, and also picture me with a pair of big, thick glasses that look like the bottom of a Coke bottle. And um, also, I was in a terrible relationship at the time. I didn't like my job. And I didn't like my car either or where I was living. And so I, I had a whole bunch of things. Just about everything could be going wrong in my life by the age of 24. And I had a happy accident. I went out for a walk to kind of clear my head in 1969 on a cold winter day. And I slipped on the ice and fell down on my back. And I didn't knock myself out, but it had a profound effect on me. It, I kind of say now... You've heard of the Jimi Hendrix experience. Well, I had an out of Hendrix experience. I, I went wham down on the ground. And for about two minutes, I was in this really clear state of consciousness where it was like everything disappeared except for the essential stuff inside. And I could feel all of my feelings and I could feel how I had feelings that I hadn't even explored since I was a kid. And I could feel how I overate to keep all my feelings trapped inside. Anyway, this profound two minutes of my life. And when I came out of that, I made this commitment. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out what it'll take to feel like that all the time. So within a year, I lost a hundred and some pounds and uh, changed my vision. So I haven't needed to wear glasses oh. ever since. And I really revamped my life very quickly because what occurred for me in that moment actually was discovering, I think now, not only the emotional dimension of myself where all my angers and fears and sadnesses and griefs were, but also the spiritual side of myself or the spiritual essence of myself, which I experienced as kind of a pure consciousness inside everywhere all the time. And I realized that's how I want to feel all the time in my life, not just for two minutes after falling down on my back on a hard <laughs> road. And so I dedicated my life to that. And fortunately, everything worked and I started writing books about it. And then everything unfolded from there. Nice. Yeah, that's I mean, that's so amazing. And you're touching on, on like the so many things here, like the physical, right? There, your, your body and your health and you're touching on the, the spiritual and the emotional and the the, the mental. So like, what are, what has that path been like for you to go from being like two gays to be like the one, the one gay, right? Um, yeah. What was the journey like? Well, it was hard work at times. Like that first year I made a vow to eating only food that I hadn't eaten before. I figured everything I ate up until now made me fat so why don't I just stop eating that and eat nothing that I've eaten before? So I started doing that, and I, I started eating all these strange things called fruits and vegetables, oh, wow. you know, and a uh, no, whole new concept for me because up until then, my idea of a meal was two cheeseburgers, 
a vanilla milkshake and maybe some apple pie for dessert. You know, it was like, no wonder, you know? And so uh, I, I started eating much purer than I'd eaten before. But it was probably like somebody coming off a drug or something, you know, like I would do fine for a few days. And then all of a sudden I would start craving that hamburger or start craving that ice cream. And I'd, I'd fall off and then I'd come back to it. And then I would, and then I'd fall off. And in a way it became a spiritual path because, you know, like a friend of mine has a sister who's a, a nun and she's been a nun for 40 years and they were visiting their home and um, their parents' home. And he would wake up in the morning at 7.30 and his sister would be already out in the garden praying. And then one morning he woke up at 6.30 and she was already out in the garden praying. And then one morning he woke up at 5.30. And so he, he asked her, he said, you know, you've been a nun for 40 years. Why are you still working on it like this? Isn't it time to sleep in a little bit? And she says, no, because I don't always wake up a nun. You know, so she has to reinvent her spiritual path every day, just like every single one of us do. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what kind of a path you're on. And so for me, I discovered that pure consciousness in myself, and I started doing things that favored that, like meditation. Interestingly enough, right after I had that experience, I met Ram Das, who had just returned to this country from India. And was, I mean, in 1969, he was wearing his robes and, you know, had the whole thing going. And I happened to meet him right there. And he advised me to start meditating and doing breathing practices and yoga. And I'd never even considered any of that stuff in a million years. And what I made was you, like, how did you meet him? What made you? I would say it was Providence because listen to this. The day after I had that big experience and I made that commitment. I want to learn how to feel like this all the time. An old friend of mine called me and said, hey, I'm, I'm going up the road from you about 30 miles to hear a talk by an old Harvard professor of mine. And he's just come back from India and I want to figure out what he's doing. You know, he was my favorite professor at Harvard, but he's had this whole become a Hindu or something. And I want to find out about it. You want to come with me? And I'd never heard of that Ram Dass at the time. And uh, so I said, sure. And so he came by and we went up uh, to Webster Lake, New Hampshire, which is where this estate was that Ram Dass was speaking on, on the grounds. And it turned out to be his father's estate. His father was a very wealthy, industrial kind of guy in Boston and had this beautiful estate on uh, Webster Lake, New Hampshire, which is kind of a very exclusive place to have a summer home. So... Um, there was Ram Das sitting in this little circle of people. All They were all his disciples, and they were all very young people and dressed in Indian outfits. And I remember this one girl came up to me with a bowl of fruit and said, you know, kind of bowed to me when I came in the door. And I mean, my brain was about to explode because I was an English literature major in college. I, I wanted to write the great American novel. You know, I had zero interest at the time in psychology or spirituality or anything remotely like that. So that's how I met Ram Dass. And the, the thing was, right after, oh, he gave a talk for three hours without any notes. And I was a teacher and a counselor at a school for delinquent boys at that time. That was my job. And it was more or less being a wrangler for 105 delinquents. And, but I also taught there and was a dormitory counselor. And so 
I asked Ramdas, I came up and I said, Ramdas, I've never seen anything like that. You just talk for three hours without referring any notes. And I don't ever go into a class, even with a bunch of delinquent boys, without pages of notes about what I'm going to be talking about. I said, where did you get that stuff from? And he picked up a picture of this grizzled old man that he had, an eight by 10 glossy of this grizzled old man. And he said, this is my guru. And he said, I just go inside and tune into him and then say what wants to come out. That sounded crazy to me. You know, I mean, literally. <laughs> right. I bet you do that all the time now, not particularly with your guru. But That's you how I live my life now. I just, <laughs> right. the, the universe is my guru. I, I don't right. go through a middleman. I go straight to the uh, wholesaler. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Now that makes so much sense. Yeah. But so something, something like something made you say yes to that invitation, right? Like it called to you somehow. I think I was desperate. I think inside I was crying out for help and I didn't know how to do it. And I think that accident was my cry for help. Mm. I mean, I'm convinced to this day that that accident saved my life because I was busy replaying my father's life. He was a heavy smoker as I was at the time. Oh, I forgot to tell you, I was puffing my way at the time through two to three packs of Marlboro's a day, being a Marlboro man. And so my father died at age 32, grossly obese, heavy smoker, in a not-so-good relationship. Those were exactly the circumstances I had created by age 24. And I'm convinced that I wouldn't even lasted until 32 had I not had that experience. So I'm so grateful about that. I feel like I've been on vacation for the last 50 years ever since that. Because what I came out of that experience was, was if we can discover our true selves then life just kind of takes over and propels us in the right direction. As a matter of fact, I'm in the middle of doing a whole bunch of stuff in preparation for the release of my new book, Conscious Luck, which is a sequel to uh, my book, The Big Leap, which many people, I uh, think you yourself, use as a, as a tool for your coaching practices. And so the new book, Conscious Luck, has this great quote in it. There's a Stanford professor named Tina Selig who does research on conscious luck and has had some really interesting discoveries. And she said the best way to think about luck is it's a wind that's always blowing and some people find out how to rise their sails and go with it. And in fact, that's what the new book is about, eight different ways to rise your sails and, and get hold of that wind that's luck. But I, I'm convinced whether you're consulting a guru or just tuning into the creative powers of the universe, that we all have that power to rebirth ourselves at every moment and be an inspiration then to other people that want to rebirth themselves into a new and improved version of themselves. Great. I can't wait to read your book um, when it comes out. When, when is it? Uh, being released may 7th or may, 7th. may 12th may 12th uh, all right yeah can't wait for that one you've yeah you've written some other stuff that i've seen on on sort of manifestation sounds you know that, that has been very inspiring to me like the three levels of manifestation that you talk about um I, we can get into that too but i wanted to hear it so you were saying like like discovering the i forget the exact phrase you used but discovering the essence of who you are like finding yes. your true essence. Like, talk to us about that. What's, what's that well, process like? I think that in order to survive in whatever family you grew up in, whether it's a healthy, sane family or my uh, 
collection of lunatics that I grew up in down in the South. Um, if you ever want to understand my family, just read a couple of chapters of a William Faulkner book sometime. You'll, you'll get the whole uh, gist right there. All of us had to suffer our way through w William Faulkner when we were in college. You may not have had to wherever you uh, went to school over there. No. Uh, but anyway, he writes novels about the old South, and that's kind of the background I come from. And I'm a California boy now, but uh, uh, for the early 20 years of my life, I lived uh, down in the South. And so everybody learns to assemble what uh, Carl Jung called a persona. A persona in Latin simply means mask. So if you think about it, we put on one mask to deal with mother, let's say, and we put on another mask to deal with father. Like, I didn't have a father. He died while my mother was pregnant with me. And so I never really knew my father, but I grew up around my grandfather a lot. Now, my grandfather was interested in one thing, and that was baseball. He ran the local baseball park, and he I grew up helping him in the baseball park. And if I wanted to talk to him, I would talk to him about baseball. That's what he liked. So that was a persona. You see, I had a baseball persona for my grandfather. My grandmother, who also I grew up around, they lived next door, my mother was a real working woman, and so I spent a lot of time over at my grandparents when I was growing up. And so um, my grandmother was obsessed with only one thing, too. But it wasn't baseball. It was the Civil War, or the war between the states, as she always called it. And so she had grown up. She was sort of bounced off the glorified or the glorious plantation life, Southern Belle and everything, and suddenly thrown out of that life and sort of had to marry my grandfather. And uh, then she developed this whole existence with him, but her heart was still in the old South. Down in there, she really felt like a Southern belle and that she should be wearing gowns every day and that kind of thing. And so I had a whole persona to put on to communicate with my grandmother. So we all build up these different personas, these different masks. There are very few relationships we have growing up where you can really completely open your heart to another person without any mask. Like, for example, you grew up in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. In your growing up, did you have anyone that you could completely freely open your heart to? I don't think so, no. They're rare. They're completely rare. Mm -hmm. I was able to do that to a certain extent. My aunt... Cat Catherine, who was a Down syndrome person, and even though she was what the universe or the world around her would call retarded, she was a person that I could completely be myself with. She didn't understand a lot of things as I got older and everything, but I was always completely able to talk to her when I was a little kid. And so I felt good about that, but that was just one tiny relationship. So we learned to assemble these masks around ourselves, these personas. So the first thing I had to get clear of was, what are these personas I've been living out? And one was a very intellectual, kind of critical kind of guy. And another one was um, a very authoritarian kind of guy, because I worked in the school for delinquent boys. And these were not kids that you could... Uh, cuddle up to, you know, <laughs> very easily anyway. And so I had to develop kind of a, a marine drill instructor persona to kind of keep the lid on things there. So underneath all that, though, I realized there were all of these things that were under my persona. And if everyone lo will look under theirs, 
you'll find that there's things you're angry about and things you're sad about and things you're scared about. You have an emotional world in there. And I discovered that world and it was a completely new world to me. I'd gotten to where I'd gotten up until age 24 by sealing off my emotions. I grew up in the John Wayne era where men, you know, men didn't cry in front of each other. And, uh, and I remember one time crying in front of my grandfather and he did not like that at all. You know, it made him so uncomfortable. You know, it was like, I don't, I don't be like that, you know? And, and I remember actually one time I got hit in the head with a baseball on the, on the baseball field and I cried (laughs) and my brother came out and sort of dragged me off the field. And I remember him saying, don't, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, not out here, man, don't cry. You know? And so there's that whole ethic of keep it all stuffed inside. Now probably it's gone a lot of the other direction. You know, if you see reality TV shows, people are always having feelings about everything. And, <laughs> but it was a very different world that I grew up in. So I had to get underneath all of those personas of mine to get down to what my real feelings were. But what I found at the bottom of everything, at the center of everything, there is this pure consciousness that I think everybody can feel if they tune into it, which is the consciousness that you are that doesn't have any programming on it. It's the consciousness that you've been from the get-go that all your programming was added to, but it doesn't have anything on it. It's this pure substance that I think once we learn how to tune into it, that becomes our true home. Mm -hmm. And whatever you do to get there, whether it's meditation or prayer or exercise or what whatever can get you to that place that's beyond all of your masks and personas and underneath all of your masks and feelings and different things that are because of your programming see if you think about it what if you'd lived in the house next door growing up you'd have a different set of programming right yeah i I can remember on one side there was this one family that had uh, two girls and a boy. The father was in agriculture. It was a whole different world. On another side was a, um, a fellow who had emigrated from Russia, a Jewish family that lived there. I would have no doubt gotten a very different education over there, got a different programming. So, But here, the same consciousness that you would be if you'd grown up in the house next door the purity of that consciousness, whatever the programming had been. That's what I think has tremendous healing value. And right now, as we're talking about this, the pandemic is going on and people are sheltering in place and a lot of places. I've come up with a new concept that I launched the other day on Instagram. I call it sheltering in space. And what I mean by that is that we all have this inner space, this pure consciousness that I'm talking about, And it's much better to make your home there rather than in contraction. You know, most people, when they get scared, contract. If you look at any animal, if you poke it, it'll contract. Or if you look at an amoeba and poke it, it will contract. Same thing with human beings. We tighten up. We want to protect the soft organs of ourselves. So we clench and hold tight. But what if we went the other direction? What if we went to expansion when we're scared? In other words, instead of clenching, go this way, relax outward, because the same space that's in here is the same space that's out here. 
and what a beautiful place to ground ourselves in you know there's no more beautiful place to ground ourselves in than in the space that holds everything and so that's why i'm advocating sheltering in space learning how to expand into your inner and outer space to, for your safety rather than for contraction Right. I like that a lot. That's amazing. I love that. So the, the, the reason that I, that I center the show around, I you know, call it Ignite Your Fire, right? And it's pre precisely that, that feeling of that like essence energy, that, that consciousness that you are, to me feels like a fire, like a, a life energy, like some kind of life force that's, that's going through me, right? And I, I, is that how you experience it too? That's how I experience it. I, I, I feel it as a literal force or a current that's moving through me all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's my barometer now. If I don't feel that, I say, hmm, wait a minute, what did I do? Did I break an agreement somewhere or did I not feel one of my feelings? See, all of these little defensive moves that human beings do and that I certainly do and did are part of our defense against that real, pure, powerful feeling of raw creativity. See, I think our raw creativity comes from that same place there. And then our minds can get involved later, you know, like, will this sell? Will this particular piece of art I'm creating sell? Maybe yes, maybe no. That's a mental consideration, and that's a good consideration. But it has nothing to do with the raw creative energy that's underneath that that created that painting in the first place. I just finished yesterday working on my new mystery novel. I finished the first draft of it. Uh, since I turned 65 10 years ago, I relaunched myself as a writer of mystery fiction. And then I've now written 10 mystery novels, and one a year, basically, and two a couple of years. So I just finished the 11th one. And I'm very excited about it. It was my best one yet, and I'm busily now polishing it up and everything. But what an important thing to me is not whether it's going to sell or not, because frankly, I've written, I think, 46 books over the years, and some of them sell great, and some of them are total flops, and I've never been able to predict which one's going to do it. You know, sometimes I get just as excited about the one, and then they flop, and I say, why did that happen? But sometimes they're going to go, and sometimes they're not. But the important thing is, to stay in the groove with your creative expression all the time. Whatever it is, it doesn't have to be writing or painting or making music, although those are all great things that I love to do myself, but it could be making a transcendently good tomato soup, or it could be designing something else. But whatever keeps your creative juices alive in there, whatever can give you that feeling of, Oh, yeah, that feeling of life is fresh. Life is, I'm experiencing life fresh as it comes to me. Yeah, exactly. That's perfect. And also, I found too, like, the, the, the format for me, like, whether I'm writing or whether I'm speaking kind of brings, like, I used to do a, more writing than I do now. Now I've noticed that, that actually when I speak, when I talk to people, I have easier access to, to that source, and um, like there's less filter there, for example. So that's something that I've, you know, that's new to me. Uh, it wasn't always that way. Like I would be too scared to say anything. And so that, that channel was sort of clogged up more. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's a learning process because like in our relationship, I mentioned we've been together 40 years. You know, we had a lot of struggles in the first couple of years. And a lot of those struggles come from exactly what you're talking about, like not knowing how to talk about our feelings. 
you know, not knowing, like for me, I even remember the day I was almost probably a year and a half or two years into our relationship when one day I was criticizing Katie about something and I, I'm, if you'd listen to my voice, you'd said, he's angry. But in the middle of it, I realized, oh, I'm scared. I sound angry, but what's really going on is that I'm scared. And so I just blurted it out. I said, I just realized I'm scared. And it kind of brought Katie up like, oh, because it let her in on a deeper part of me. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I'm scared I'm going to lose you. <sighs> there it was. You know, I hadn't been able to say that. And once that came out, I began to be a lot easier about saying, you know, like, I feel sad right now, or I feel angry, or I feel scared, or I love you, or whatever the raw feeling was, it was easier for me to get it out once I kind of got it out the first time. Yeah. I mean, that's such a completely different thing, right? Like, you know, sounding, being angry or sounding angry versus like, oh, I'm scared of you losing you. Like, I think anybody putting themselves in that situation, you're like, yeah, that would just completely change that whole, that whole conversation, that whole moment, right? Like now we're connecting and like, oh, wow. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, there's a, a fellow on one of our websites who is kind of giving a testimony. He said, one word saved my marriage. And what he was talking about is shifting from always being angry to learning how to say, oh, I'm scared right now, or oh, I'm hurt or sad. Taking it out of the realm of you, 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 and putting it in the realm of, hmm, me. Here's how I feel. Hmm. You know, it's a much different conversation once you start speaking from the heart rather than speaking from here. Right. Yeah. So I want to, I want to hear your thoughts on, so I know that, that like for you, the creativity and sexuality is also linked. It's like sexuality is something that we're, we tend to be like a little scared of in this, our society and like, or, you know, have a weird relationship with, right? Like it's flashed in our faces, but we can't really be honest about our own, how we all relate to it. So how does that, how does that connect to creativity? Yes. Well, I'll tell you, we're not the only culture over here that has its issues with create, with the sexuality, particularly. My wife came back from a speaking tour of, of China a couple of years ago where there was a lot of very high-powered people in the room with these. She was her audience. And she came back and she says, she was wondering, does any successful Chinese executive not have a mistress or two? Because it was the, the, the training was all full of women who were really mad that their husbands were cheating on them with these other mistresses. And then the husbands were mad at the wives. And it was, anyway, it was a real uh, different kind of situation. But the, the connection of creativity and sexuality is intimate from the very beginning. Because if you think about it, we all get here with an explosion of creativity that results in the production of a new organism. So I always tell my students, there's never any reason to feel any kind of self-esteem issue in your life because you came out of your father's penis as a member of about 250,000 squad of fellows who were wildly swimming up an equivalent of a six kilometer swim to get to the egg. And you won. You got there. 
So you were the one that got to the egg first. But what happened? As soon as you got to the egg, boom, your head exploded and you ceased to be a singular individual and you became part of a whole that was suddenly dividing, dividing, dividing. So one becomes many and then goes back to become a few and then becomes one. No wonder we all get here crying when we come out of the chute. So, uh, but, uh, so we have to look at the very beginning of our life. We begin with our own personal version of the Big Bang, just like the universe exploded into being 15 billion or so years ago, we exploded into being whenever we were conceived. And so it's important to keep that in mind because, see, it's easy as a clever human being who's good at operating on things out here in the material world, we tend to then think we are a special case where we're not exactly part of the universe, that we operate on the universe, but the universe isn't us. We're a little bit different. We're a little bit special. But I'm here to tell you that we are all the universe unfolding in our own particular way, going from union to individuality, back to union into individuality. It's the dance of life is surrendering to union and then becoming an individual again. And that's the important dynamic in relationship because if you understand that, your relationships become so much easier. If you realize that you're going to be in a pulsation between getting closer to your beloved and then separate. And those are two different things. They're, the union phase is very important, but equally important is the individuation phase, as Jung called it. So we have to be equipped to be all the way into union and all the way into individuation. Those are the two dynamic poles of life that make us who we are. Many of us are shut down in one or those other areas. Like some of us are shut down on the union phase where we don't really let ourselves get close to another person. I know a lot about that. That was my pattern. And some of us are so affiliative that we're so eager to let ourselves go into another person that we don't know how to individuate and take on our own destiny in life. See, I think a relationship only works between two people who are completely in ownership of their individuality as well as their unity part. So Katie and I have worked for years on overcoming all the barriers to individuation and unity. Now, after 40 years, and for many years, we've been able to be totally close to each other and totally our own individual selves at the same time. But that takes quite a bit of work to do, or I would say conscious application. I don't think it's work, but it's attention. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can definitely see that in my life as well. I was, I was similar to you. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's been a process to, to learn to do that. Um, yeah, that's a really powerful metaphor. I appreciate that. Thank you. You talked about your 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 feelings. I want to like I want to get more for someone who's feeling like I can I can feel that there is something in there, but I'm not really sure yet. Like which is me and which isn't, and like how do you how do you manage that process that journey? I think one good thing to do that's always good is if you can find some 
tool of reflection or tool of consciousness. Like I meditate every day. That's a great tool because for 20 minutes twice a day, I'm in there and my mantra and then my mantra disappears into that space of pure consciousness and then some thoughts come and my mantra and then I'm into space again. So I get about an hour a day of that kind of deep reflection. So I highly recommend if you don't have, if your listeners and viewers don't have a good meditation practice to get one as soon as possible because that's one thing that I've really become enamored of over the past. Well, I learned to meditate in 1972, I believe, so 48 years ago. So I haven't missed a day since uh, 40, for 48 years and I, I don't plan to today or tomorrow either. So it's a very good practice. Another practice we teach here are what we call wonder questions. And let me give you an example of a wonder question. It would go, hmm, how can I get the love I want and need in my life? Hmm. I'm starting it with a hmm because a hmm can put you into sincere wonder. Hmm. 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 I wonder about that. So a wonder question doesn't have a ready answer, and it it certainly doesn't have a right answer, and it's designed to produce more space. It's not designed to produce a specific answer. So for example, you might say, hmm, how do I bring more love into my life? Or how do I bring more loving discipline into my life? Whatever the wonder question is, you launch the wonder question and then you let it go and you just let life teach you the answer. See, I think life itself is right there with the lessons that we need at every moment if we're open to them. That's one of the big points we make in the New Conscious Luck book, too, that luck is happening all the time. Your sales aren't up all the time. You know, like we want everybody's sales to be up so they can catch those wins. And that's why you know, it takes practice. It takes some focused attention to learn how to do that. But uh, at least we know now what the rules are. Nice. Can you share any of those? You said you had eight. eight. Yes. Uh, let me share a couple of them. One is to find your lucky tribe. Start looking for hanging out with people who are luckier than you are, seemingly. Okay? And especially do what we call riffing your Rolodex. Go through your contacts and get rid of people who are kind of dead wood, who kind of bring you down when you're around them. So that's one thing you can do is start looking for your lucky tribe. A second thing, really important thing, this is probably the best way to end it, is everybody that's lucky, we found through interviewing all these tons of people, they have what we call luck-worthy goals. They have goals in their life that make it worthwhile being lucky. You know, so if you think that being lucky is going to help you win the lottery and buy a Ferrari. Maybe that can help you, but is that really a luck-worthy goal? I love that. Yeah. You know? So you got to get what's underneath that red Ferrari. What do I really want? Mm -hmm. Well, it may have nothing to do with a red Ferrari. You know that once you get underneath that, it may be completely something different. But you know, to have luck-worthy goals, kind of go down inside and figure out what do I really want? That if I were the luckiest person in the world, what would I have that I don't have now? And so that's way to, get, to begin to apply that to yourself. Right. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Gay. So uh, where can people find you, 
follow you, stay yes. connected? Uh, we're all over the place, but one place you can go right now is to consciousluck.com. Uh, there's a good thing you can do there. You can download two free luck meditations that we've specially created that relate to the book, the new book. And uh, even if the book hasn't been, uh, the book comes out in the middle of May, but uh, you can go there even before if you want and uh, get your two free uh, morning and evening luck meditations. All right, phenomenal. We'll make sure I have a link out there as well. Thank you so much, Gay. Any final words that you want to leave people with? You're already a lot luckier than you think you are, and the wind is already blowing. So if you can just get those sails up, take a breath and sail off into a luckier future than you've ever imagined before. Thank you for listening to the podcast episode. After 20 years as a serial entrepreneur, it's my passion to bring you ideas and insights from some of the best entrepreneurs, leaders, and thinkers in the world straight to your phone. We're going to be launching many, many more podcast episodes in the future, so please subscribe and leave a five-star review if you found any value at all from today's conversation. Your reviews and feedback mean the world to me. 